over the years traveling from parish to parish and preaching to folks who I knew reasonably well more over time, but always coming after some months from the previous visitation, I always counted on something happening between the time I drove into the parking lot and I got to the pulpit that would provide me a moment of some humor with which to break the ice. The, the classic one was when I climbed up in the pulpit and there were not one, not two, but three Starbucks cups of coffee underneath. And I, I brought one up to show them and it actually was half full. It was sort of an uh, amazing moment. And this morning I was not let down, but the, uh, uh, the faux pas was actually on me. I, I was reminded of a, a moment when somebody read the long, wrong lesson and actually had the, the, uh, uh, the gift to say at the end, here endeth the wrong reading. <laughs> <laughs> and then proceeded with the right one. So having muffed the collect of the day, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Grant us, O Lord, to trust in you with all our hearts, for as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Okay, some of you all know me somewhat pretty well and know that I accept the term liberal pretty easily. Uh, to most, my theological, philosophical, and political positions are well known and far to the left. I've jokingly described myself as a good California socialist. But as I would suggest later in this homily, this label, all labels, either self-applied or attached by others are, well, I think they're elements of the dark side. Nevertheless, my Facebook friends are all over the place, and so are my real friends. They cover the ideological, theological spectrum. And so I really shouldn't have been la surprised last week when I had a very conservative Facebook friend who, well, he's honestly been ramping up for several weeks, if not months, made a reference to Muslim terrorists as soulless. I immediately started clicking the keys and wrote out a withering response intended to indict, convict, and execute. Fortunately, an angel whispered in my ear, Jesus saves, you can delete. <laughs> and I obeyed. However, this label, hurled into the ether, soulless, haunted me, haunts me now. I feel convicted by my silence. Did I do the right thing? Should I have confronted him? I'll be privately and more gently than I was initially inclined. I don't know. My heart is troubled. 
And all of this feels part and parcel to a distorting, a dividing, a dehumanizing that seems to be gripping our world and our society. And if we're honest, to some extent, every single one of us. If I can take the humanity out of another, I can pretty much say or do whatever I wish. Wednesday's heartbreaking testimony by those four dear gymnasts about their sexual abuse and the bungled investigation is a graphic example of what that dehumanizing and objectifying of others, particularly women, looks like. The testimony also clearly witnesses to a level of indifference, if not complicity, by others around and a system that should be taking care of the most vulnerable. This abuse is a grotesque example of what is a basic human sin that at one level we all possess, separating our fellow human travelers from their true nature as God's beloved. A twisted attempt to make others less human without a soul, an object, a commodity, an expendable. And this sin surely has its perpetrators, its victims, its accomplices, both by commission and a mission. And so grappling with all of this stuff, this growing darkness of division and dehumanizing that I feel, and I since we all do to some extent, I'm given these three brief verses from Luke's gospel. Just three. But actually, I think they'll do quite nicely. They are unique to Luke, betwixt two Markan sources. Just before our gospel passage, Jesus visits the Pharisee's home where a woman in, of this, in the city who was a sinner, get the labeling, comes and anoints Jesus' feet. The Pharisee's view of Jesus quickly dims. He had labeled him prophet, and now he doesn't see Jesus' actions as fitting that label. How could a prophet allow this woman to approach him thus? And immediately after our gospel verses, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And while Jesus describes the quality of the landscape after the fact, the sower doesn't judge. The sower casts the seed everywhere. God's abundant love. The through line here seems to be the core Jesus message, the movement that we're called to be a part of. It's the truth that Edmund Browning spoke of a quarter of a century ago when he was installed as presiding bishop, that in this church, 
there will be no outsiders, no outcasts. That is the gospel of Jesus, that he goes out and proclaims in cities and villages. That is why he caused such a ruckus in the Pharisee's house and elsewhere. It is revolutionary, one might even say a little California socialist, to hold the whole human family in equity and in divine mutuality. Because it is revolutionary, it remains aspirational. We're not there yet, not even close. These verses actually show the incompleteness of the gospel dream, even as it's proclaimed by Jesus and remembered by Luke. What we don't hear is of 